Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and this is awesome. Talking to some of the most interesting, accomplished, thoughtful, and fun people in our culture. It's been a thrill of a lifetime. And today is, well, I was going to say it's no exception, but it kind of is an exception because we get to have an esteemed guest back for another talk. Jonathan Rausch is joining us for part two of our conversation. And just to quickly reset, Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, is the author of eight books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. He is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award. His latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, is a deep diving account of how to push back against disinformation, canceling, and other new threats to our fact-based epistemic order, which I am determined to focus on today. <laughs> John, thanks so much for coming back. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm tickled to death to be back with you. The first one was so much fun. I turned the tables on you a little bit because I'm so interested in your story and talking about religion. So maybe now we can turn them back again. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So we will dive in uh, expeditiously into the Constitution of Knowledge. But there was one question that I didn't get to uh, about denial. I was startled by a confession of sorts you offered in, in that book. You said, I write for many reasons, but none is more important than the impulse to exert beauty over others. It is in a petty way vengeance for the humiliation of having been enslaved by beauty myself. Could you help, help me understand? <laughs> I don't think I can, Corey. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, that writers sometimes write. It's very true in some way, but it's a little hard to analyze. But that book is about if, if listeners have time to read it, it's very short. It's barely even a book. It's more like an article, but it's an account of, of growing up in deep self-denial as a gay person many years ago. Um, it's, it's really my case for same-sex marriage because it would have given me a destination for love in a sense that you know my life wasn't hopeless. But I was just completely enthralled by, by the stunning beauty of of boys and men, and even to the point of, you know, having trouble with, with eye control. I guess some of you heterosexuals know what that's like with women, though I, I always have trouble believing that it's actually like that for you. But, you know, I thought I was extremely ugly, and I thought I was extremely sick. So later, when I became a writer, I guess what I was saying is that in the back of my mind, this is when I'm on the page, maybe I'm not ugly, maybe I'm not sick. And maybe that's proved to be true, but I don't know, you tell me. Well, what comes to mind is a lot of what we do in our adult life, maybe in reaction to our experiences in our formative years. I mean, there are formative years for a reason, you know, and I know in my adult life, I've kept on coming back to trying to like calibrate properly between addressing old wounds without getting caught in the morass of it, uh, but allowing, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking of my endeavors in theater and endeavors like this one, like something that has yet to be satisfied there isn't this end point, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the point. It's, it's the, yeah, it's, it's, it gets pretty abstract pretty quickly, but you know, in what you and I do, we want to change the world. We want to make it a better place. We want to find and expose important new ideas and all that noble stuff. 
But let's face it, we're also driven by vanity, right? We want to get our names out there. We want to get attention. We think our ideas and at least our perspectives are, are worth hearing. So I guess in that quote, I was also admitting to a certain amount of vanity as being part of what's going on when I when I write. But I can't do that with, with my face, with my body, that's for sure. Anyone who's watching this will confirm that. <laughs> So it's going to be with my pen. It's going to be with my ideas. And maybe that's kind of a little bit of indication for feeling ugly. Okay. So I got to tell you a quick story. And it's it's kind of about the uh, keeping our vanity in check. So when I was a little boy, we lived in New York and my mother had to go to work right away. And our next door neighbors were the Menounis. We lived in this uh, mostly Italian, uh, African-American neighborhood. In, um, in Staten Island. And uh, so, so Ida was the mother that she was like, uh, she, she watched all of us from the neighborhood. And I was the, the youngest one. And I always thought uh, of all the kids that she watched, the Taylors and her kids and me and my brother, that I was her favorite because um, every day at the end of the day, she would kiss me on the head and uh, she had a pet name. I thought it was her pet name for me. She called she called me Faccia Bruta, Faccia Bruta. <laughs> so I don't know if you speak Italian, but later on in life, uh, about 30 years old, I start speaking a little bit of French, a little bit of Italian. I find out Ida, all these years, she's calling me monster face, <laughs> beastly face. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I couldn't get uh, too big of a head, but. Uh, <laughs> Did she pinch your cheeks? The Jewish mothers will pinch your cheeks and say, Shayna punam, shayna punam. That means yeah. beautiful face, but it's yeah. said in a way that pinch your cheeks really hard and then shake you by the head. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's something we would try to avoid as kids. Yeah, no, she she wouldn't pinch my cheeks. You know, Italians and Jews are very much alike. You know, uh, I guess Jews invented guilt and Italians perfected, or Jews and Catholics or something. Um, and uh, you know, Jews are like this with the hand open, and Italians are like. Or maybe it's vice. I don't know. There was just a lot of similarities between our family and the Menounis. Um, but she would just take my head in her or my face <laughs> in her hands, kiss me. Faccio brutto, faccio brutto. <laughs> uh, okay, so I want to restate something that we just scratched the surface on the last conversation. And and just to just to say it again, it the constitution of knowledge, it's not just the book, it, it's it's a whole way of thinking, really. It's a whole movement to reclaim truth. Uh, and frankly, it, it's so profound for me, and I, I think it is worth this, uh, this pursuit because it, it strikes at the heart of the problems we've been trying to address on, on talk of politics and religion without killing each other. So I, I would like to uh, persuade my, my, my friends, my family, my church friends, my neighbors, and this is the heart of it. So we can think with more integrity and be a healthier, more ethical community. And the Constitution of Knowledge addresses many of those problems and the threats to the ideal. So with that brief introduction, tell us what is the Constitution of Knowledge? So this might take a paragraph or two, so forgive me if I'm less concise than I try to be. But it goes right to what we've been talking about. Every human society has disagreement and it's often a fundamental disagreement. Um, no large society has ever had an account of the facts that everyone believes, shared facts. And we wouldn't even want to because diversity of viewpoint is where we get knowledge from, checking each other's mistakes. And disagreement about questions about truth have driven many societies, I'd argue over human history, virtually all societies, to schism, warfare, because uh, they couldn't agree, Catholics versus Protestants, you know, war raging across Europe for 150 years, or very frequently to authoritarianism, cultism, a priest or a prince or a politburo or something else beginning with a P says, okay, if you're, if you're going to be in this group, here's what you believe. It's this text and I'm the interpreter. And that usually has to be enforced because otherwise people disagree. So you wind up with, in all of these schemes, with warfare and ignorance and oppression. This is the problem of how societies figure out what's true and what's false. It's super fundamental. Um, and it was not solved until about 
350 years ago, and then really solved, you know, the last 200, 250 years. So the same ideas behind the Constitution of the United States come from a period called the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment, and the development of the philosophy called small l liberalism starts with the great philosopher John Locke and proceeds from there. America's founding is deeply rooted in it. And there's a lot of ways to talk about liberalism, but the easiest shorthand is to say it substitutes rules for rulers. It says for social decision-making, instead of relying on some authority, we're gonna distribute authority so that no one in particular will be in charge and everyone will have to follow the same rules. So for Adam Smith and the economy, that's a market economy. Everyone has money and they spend it, lots of corporations, lots of preferences. In politics, that's representative democracy. People get votes, anyone can run for Congress in principle, what you can do, I can do. Very decentralized since you've got multiple branches, they're working for and against each other. And in knowledge, you get this thing that I called in the previous book, liberal science. Now I call it the constitution of knowledge where you get no one in particular in charge of deciding what's true. Instead, you get two basic rules that everything else spins off of. And they go back right to the point you were just making Corey about everything being in midair. The first rule is what philosophers call fallibilism. No argument can ever be ended for sure forever. You might, no matter how certain you are, you might be wrong. Even if you don't think you're wrong, you have to take that seriously enough to allow other people to question your point of view and not kill them or throw them in jail. That's a social revolution when you think about it because until that came along, the way we killed bad hypotheses was by killing the people, the individuals who had the hypothesis. Right. This says, no, you can't do that. So what do you have to do? And that's the second rule. That's the empirical rule. We think of empiricism as having to do with lab experiments, but it's much more than that. It can be, here's my logic. Now, challenge my logic. It can be, here's, uh, here's some other forms of reasoning or evidence. But the point of the empirical rule is it says, no special privileges. Everyone's going to have to be able to persuade everyone else that they're right. So that means if you have an experience, you have to be able to show it to me and I have to be able to replicate it and there go your miracles. If you say to me, no, you have to be a Christian and then you'll understand why it's true that Jesus died and went to heaven. We can't play that game because I can't see it. The empirical rule says you gotta persuade others according to rules, even if they speak a different language, if they're in a different part of the world, if it's an experiment, it should come out the same way. If it's logic or reasoning, they should be able to work through it. But once you have these two rules, you can create something that humanity could not do before, a transformative technology of a global network of individuals and institutions hunting for each other's errors in which any proposition is open to question, but over time, if a proposition stands up well, theory of gravity or whatever, it becomes deeply embedded and much harder to root out simply because it's been so well proven. But you can get literally millions and millions of minds all over the world participating in this venture of finding truth, finding knowledge, using rules. This has transformed us from a tribal species in which knowledge advanced very, very slowly, if at all, to a world in which Literally thousands of scientists in a weekend can decode a virus that's killing us and in another weekend create a vaccine. A world in which literally, I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Today, in any given morning, literally, I believe humans add more to objective knowledge than we did in our first entire 200,000 years. And that's because we've created this transcendent global hive mind of people interacting through these rules to seek knowledge. Which, so the constitution of knowledge, those are the rules for doing that. And it turns out free speech isn't enough. You need a lot of structure. You need a lot of rules. It works like the US constitution. 
US Constitution says you've got different factions, different ambitions, you pit them against each other, you force them to compromise, and that becomes a dynamic engine of policy. In the Constitution of Knowledge, you've got different biases, different viewpoints, you pit them against each other, uh, they have to persuade. And only when enough people are persuaded does it become knowledge. It's incredibly fruitful and effective. It brings knowledge, freedom, and peace, the three things we care about most. What it cannot do is provide you with absolute final forever certainty. And that's why you feel like you're floating in midair. Sorry, that was a bit of a filibuster. No, 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 not at all. That's what I was asking for. So you touched on a lot there that I do want to follow up on. First, it's something that you just alluded to. At one point, you say an epistemic regime should provide three public goods, first knowledge, second freedom, third peace. So if you will, can you first uh, tell us what you mean by epistemic regime? And then if you would expound on those three public goods. So by providing knowledge, I mean that the the propositions that it vets that wind up in the textbooks that wind up being the basis for public policy. Like, you know, lots of people seem to believe Elvis Presley is alive and maybe living in Indiana and that's okay. They can believe that. Oh, he is. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> he was bodily raised from the dead, from the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to, do we send him a social security check? We need a public answer for that. And those answers should be well-grounded, not arbitrary, right? Uh, in other words, true to the best of our, our knowledge. And the constitution of knowledge is vastly, vastly better at coming up with right answers than any other system because it's so much better at finding errors. That's really what it does every day is it sifts. It's a gigantic global machine of mind and institutions searching for errors, looking for those needles in the haystack. So that's knowledge. The second is freedom. Because this system is built on rules that allow anyone to participate and do not allow any special privilege or authority to shut down the argument or say, well, only Christians get to participate, only black people or white people get to be have valid viewpoints. Because it does not allow those moves, it is inherently anti-authoritarian. Anyone who comes along and says, you know what, it's true because I say it's true. And if you don't like it, you can get out of here or go to jail. You can never, ever make that move in the constitution of knowledge. It's simply illegal. If a president of the United States, for example, decides to change the route of a hurricane yeah. using a Sharpie on a weather map, <laughs> he might get away with that politically. But believe me, there is not a university in the world or a newsroom in the world where that will be counted as science. Religious leaders, of course, do it all the time. So that's freedom. This is the only epistemic order that, that assures freedom. And then the biggest of the three, they're all important, but the biggest of the three is, is peace. Millions and millions of humans have died because they could not agree on what's true. And often from our modern point of view, the disagreements were about nothing like transubstantiation or Trinity. People were killed over this on huge scales because it was deemed to be so important. And what was important about it is partly, what do you think is true? You're wrong, I'm right. But part of it is, these societies believed that they were knitted together by harmonized beliefs and that it was a fundamental threat to the society if someone believes something different. That's why the Catholic Church you know, opened the Inquisition to chase down all the heretics. They thought the peace, the harmony of society, the stability of the social order was at stake and they were right until the constitution of knowledge comes along and says, we can build stability a whole different way. We can build stability on pluralism of belief and diversity of belief and toleration of disagreement. And that's the way we end the wars. And it worked. Uh, as to why I think peace, freedom, and knowledge are important. Um, you knew that was my next question, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of already asked it. And I guess here I just have to say, well, if you're really in favor of ignorance, oppression and uh, what's the opposite of a peace war. If, if you really like those things, then we don't have much to talk about. That's such a ninja answer for that. <laughs> Either that or a Jewish guilty answer. I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, well, okay. If someone's saying, can I prove that freedom is better than tyranny? I can adduce lots of evidence 
that people prefer it, that they flourish better, that societies are far more humane and decent. I can show you all the iniquities of slavery and suffering. But if at the end of the day, you're a sociopath or you want some kind of firm moral footing, then we're back to where we started. And I have to say, well, you know what? I can't tell you, I don't have a God who can tell me that freedom is better than oppression and peace is better than war um, and truth is better than falsehood. So that I can't give you. But I will say, just to goad you a little, sorry, but yeah, just to okay. goad you a little, I will say that the people who claim to have fundamental incontestable reasons to know that truth and freedom and peace are good have not done a very good job historically of providing any of those three things. Right, right. So the way I was going to ask that question, and you've already begun doing this, is instead of asking on what authority are, are these public goods considered good, I might ask you to make a persuasive case as to why these public goods are in fact good. I think you've begun to do that, but <laughs> it sounded a lot like my mother when she was giving me an exhortation. Well, if you want to go and die in a ditch somewhere, go and make yourself happy, you know, like, <laughs> so, but uh, it's, it's not a bad argument. I, I guess this will sound squirrely. Maybe it is squirrely. But when I set out to write this book and my last book on the subject, Kindly Inquisitors, I kind of thought, you know, if the starting cast point has to be, why is it better to have peace, freedom, and knowledge than to have the opposite, then I've already lost the conversation because I'm arguing with sociopaths. So I need to talk to the people who are most Americans and moments in the world who think that those three things are good and important and who will seek them out whenever they have the chance. Now, there are deeper rationales. You can look at John Rawls, Immanuel Kant, who both, Rawls says, behind a veil of ignorance, if we don't know what our position is in society, are you going to choose an oppressive society? Uh, probably not, because you're more likely to be oppressed than an oppressor. Are you going to choose a war, a, a society that's a constant warfare? Well, probably not, because you'll get killed. So he has the argument from the veil of ignorance. Uh, Kant has an argument from the categorical imperative which is, well, if you want to justify something as a moral order, you have to apply it to yourself. So how do I like being in a society where I'm oppressed, where I'm just, you know, being blown up by bombs, uh, where I'm ignorant? And the answer is, I probably don't like it, so I shouldn't inflict it on others. But all of that said, back to where we started, I cannot give you the ultimate final answer for why my values are better than a sociopath. But in a way, that's kind of the point. It, it, that is, yes, there is a leap, but in a way, that is what makes it a, a stronger, a, a stronger regime, if you will, because there yeah, isn't socially, that's right. one individual authority. Correct. And so this is a subtlety that people miss, but I think it's really important. And you know, I say this as a homosexual American who grew up in a very different world. So if you look at the moral development of most societies over time, there really isn't much. Like if you look at the Roman Empire, some, some emperors are great, some are terrible. There are times of relatively you know, greater peace and freedom and times of greater oppression. The same is true of most civilizations. If you look at the liberal social orders, constitution of knowledge, um, also to a large extent, democracies and economies. And you look at them over time, you're going to see steady movement in a direction. Like, you know, if what you're seeing over time is more inclusion, more equality, more understanding that people who are different from you are also human, more respect for minority rights, more peace over time more of the rule of law, more plenitude, if you look at the economy, more political representation, if you look at the United States, when the US was founded, only 6% of the population could vote. If you're seeing a steady path in that direction, you know you're looking at a liberal society. You can always tell which way the tape is running. So I can't give you a moral ending point or a moral beginning that I can say is grounded in God. But I can give you an account of 
demonstrated moral progress of a kind that most people would believe is good. And I can say that there's only one system which gives you as part of what it offers over time, not always in you know, this year or next year, but over time, an, an arc, as, as King says, that bends toward justice. So that is all very hopeful, but as you deal with a great deal in the book, there are unique threats. Um, pretty early on, you introduce it, and then you really deal with it in the last couple chapters. You say, the, uh, let's see, the spread of viral disinformation and alternative reality, some, sometimes called troll culture, and the spread of enforced conformity and ideological blacklisting, sometimes called cancel culture. So how, how do you think how do you think the constitution of knowledge is doing in the face of such threats? Well, first thing to say is that the constitution of knowledge, let's just set out a few things about what this is. Let's get specific. So the constitution of knowledge is the rules we use socially as you know, collectively to figure out what's true. And that's the things we've been discussing. And it's got four main pillars, four parts of society that just must be rooted in the constitution of knowledge or else we find ourselves in a world of ignorance and oppression and the rest. And those four, number one, the world of science, academia, research, pretty self-evidently. Number two is the world of journalism. Yeah. Very important that it be fact-based. Once journalism becomes taken over by propaganda or unreality, it becomes useless and a tool for cynicism and manipulation. The third is law. The, the concept of a fact comes not from science, it comes from law, predates science, because the courts needed to have a coherent account of what happened. So they said, well, you make your case, they'll make their case, we'll, we'll figure it out in the con structured contextual process. And the fourth is government, Orwell and Arendt, and the Soviet Union, um, and Nazi Germany, and many others have taught us what can happen when governments discard truth as a guidepost and become arbitrary, capricious. So those four things need to be grounded in the constitution of knowledge and they've always had enemies since Galileo was imprisoned by the Catholic church. Authoritarians hate the constitution of knowledge because they wanna be in charge. Cultists hate it. Demagogues don't like it, restricts what they can say and get away with. So it's always had enemies. There have always been challenges. There always will be. The two you mentioned are the most characteristic right now and the, the ones that I devote ink to in my book. One of them is Russian style mass disinformation, which for the first time in either in all of American history or maybe since in the decade before the Civil War when disinformation was used by Southern secessionists, this is new, the deployment of Russian style mass disinformation in the American context. And the second is a form of manipulation that's come to be called cancel culture. It's not a term that, that existed when I started the book, but that's manipulating people by manipulating the social environment so that they're afraid to speak up. And that allows you to create a false consensus in which a small number of very left-wing people in places like universities and Twitter can greatly magnify their influence. Both of these things are very sophisticated forms of cognitive warfare. They're playing with our minds in powerful ways, even if you know that you're being played with. They're still powerful. Um, and the question is, we, we can get into how they work and who's doing them because you know actual people with actual names are behind this. But the important thing is to understand what's being done to us, how cognitive warfare works, and then harden our society, harden the constitution of knowledge against it. The bad news, it's really hard. The good news is that we've done it before in the past and earlier eras. Yeah. So just to dig in on that point a little first of all uh, what you described earlier um, i love a note at the end of each paragraph for the four pillars professional scholarship science and research reality-based journalism government agencies law and jurisprudence in each of those paragraphs you repeat they may disagree on a lot of things but they regard lying and making stuff up as a firing offense so i'm glad you like that i almost took that out I loved it. I thought it's too. I thought it's too repetitive. Plus, I wanted to say making shit up, but then I didn't. <laughs> making shit up. I think you did say that in one of them. Yeah, 
but okay, so this is an important point because you, you do, there, there is some nuance here. You do d- make a distinction between canceling versus criticism. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit uh, about, you gave a, a pretty helpful uh, di- diagnosis or, or indicators, I think is the word that you used when we know it's canceling versus criticism. So could you, could you address that a little bit? Yeah, how you know you're being canceled. The first thing to say is I'll, I'll have a Rick Perry moment if I try to remember all seven of my, my diagnostic <laughs> tests department. are being canceled. Yeah. Right. Oh, damn. What is that other one? <laughs> so I won't even try. But one of the things people say is, look, Roush, uh, look, Nathan, you guys are privileged white guys. You're not used to being criticized. That's what's really going on here. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the, crit- get out of the kitchen. Um, and that's not right. And there's a couple ways we know it's not right. Uh, one is that we have polls that are now telling us that 60 plus percent of the American public is afraid to give their true political beliefs for fear of um, social or professional consequences. A third of Americans across the ideological spectrum, it's not just conservatives, um, say that they are afraid of professional or uh, pro- of losing a job or professional opportunity if they say their true political beliefs. These are levels of self-centership that are to the best we can tell, like three to four times the level at the height of the McCarthy era. And that's because no one can be sure what's safe to say, and that's how the counselors want it. They can change the rules every day. It can be arbitrary, random. They want us to over-police and be paranoid. So those kinds of numbers are not consistent with a healthy critical environment, which is one where people are unafraid to have criticisms where they know that being wrong is not a career killing move. If being wrong were a career killing move, then we couldn't have science. We couldn't have journalism because being wrong is part of it. So that's that's the first signpost. If the punishment for being wrong is that you make one mistake and you lose your career, your job, you've got mobs of people saying that you should be fired. Uh, Even if it's the only stupid thing you've ever said, even if it's not even stupid, then you know you're being canceled. What are some of the other signs? Um, If it's an organized attack. So something that should never happen in science is 500 people get together and orchestrate an attack on an idea saying, this person can't say that should be fired. Um, So if it's organized, if it's campaign, if they're taking someone's entire career and reducing it to a single moment or even a single word, Now, the whole point of the constitution of knowledge and criticism is you want to look at a person's overall credibility. Like if they spent 30 years mastering a topic and have written distinguished stuff, and then some tweet comes out and says, this person is a racist. Well, you're supposed to look at the whole record instead of saying, well, then they must be a racist. Another big one, like these are like diagnostic tests. The more they the more of them you see, the sure you can be that you're being canceled. And, and here's a big one. It's the so-called secondary boycotts. So in the McCarthy era, the reign of terror worked because it wasn't just that if you were a known communist, you could lose your job, your career, your reputation. If you defended someone who was a known communist, the same thing would happen. Canceling exactly the same thing. Nathan tweets something. I, there's something very real. I can, I can tell you. Yeah, anyone who's been canceled knows this. So if Nathan tweets something and I defend Nathan, even if I disagree with Nathan and say, you know what, he has a right to say that, or it's a legitimate point that I disagree with, they come after me. The point here is to suppress the criticism by making everyone terrified. So these are all signs of canceling, and there are others. And yeah, you probably have run into this. I, well, that exact thing, there was a fellow in the podcast academy, he was on the board, and he has a position on abortion that I don't agree with, and he expressed himself in a way that I really don't agree with. He went to the baby killing language, and long story short, he gets kicked off the board. After the fact, and for about uh, uh, the, the rest of the weekend and into the, the next week, man, this guy was getting all kinds of fire. And I piped in and I said, hey, you know, he, he's he's off the board. But a lot of these comments, it, it wasn't just in, in Twitter. It was uh, there's a Slack um, channel that 
a lot of folks participate in, I just found it to be really cruel. So I, I forget exactly what I said because I ended up having to take my my comment down because I, I, I just said, can, can we just try to be a little bit more civil and extend each other a little bit more grace? And man, I, that, that, that's, that's exactly what the secondary boycott, that's exactly what happened to the extent that I had several uh, members um, following me in at least four different environments, not just the Slack channel, not just Twitter, but going into LinkedIn and commenting and you know the, the, the trolling part of it, I guess you could say. And it got really, um, it was pretty absorbing uh, and pretty defeating. So I ultimately- yeah. Why'd you take your comment down? Why didn't you just say, well, um, I made a valid point. Uh, if you don't like it, lump it. Because it's really hard, right? It's really hard to stand up that way. It is. It is. I regret having taken the comment down now. So what's going on here? The dynamics of this are super sophisticated. What's, what cancel culture is doing is creating what, what sociologists and psychologists call a spiral of silence. So we're in a room and most people that room believe, I don't know, the theory of gravity, make something up. But there's an intimidation campaign such that anybody who makes that point gets hammered just hammered. And anyone who defends anyone who makes that point gets hammered. Those people begin thinking, well, I don't need to be all upfront about gravity. That creates a spiral of silence where everyone in the room is intimidated and silenced because everyone else in the room is intimidated and silent. But, um, but humans, this plays with our minds, not just our tongues, because humans are incredibly competent consensus antenna. We look around society to figure out what's true or what's false. That's adaptive if you think about it, because you know, out in the savannah, if 90 people think one thing and I think another, chances are they're right and I'm wrong. Also, if I disagree with them and they throw me out of the tribe, I'm dead. So we are wired to want to agree with others around us. So this begins to play with our mind. We begin to think, well, maybe gravity's not true. We see this in cults all the time. People go down these rabbit holes. We see it in QAnon. You're out of the social group if you question this stuff. So this creates an environment where it's not just that people are afraid to speak out. It's that no one knows where the real consensus is anymore. Well, why would someone want to produce that kind of environment where no one knows where the real consensus is? Because then those small groups of determined activists who say things that are just patently false, like, human sex is non-binary. We're talking about sex, not gender. It's, it's biologically false. We come in two basic types, but a lot of people start thinking, well, maybe that's wrong. In fact, maybe it's, maybe it's transphobic or homophobic or whatever to say it. And that allows these small minorities with frequently extreme views and frequently authoritarian tendencies to get huge amounts of traction in environments like Twitter, college campuses, now increasingly boardrooms and newsrooms, where they can exploit spirals of silence. So you had a conversation, an imaginary conversation toward the end of the book. You picked up for, I think it was Aristotle, and you were speaking to, and I might mispronounce the name of the student, but the Theotetus? Theotetus? Yes, Plato actually, but. Same Plato, idea. Okay. Yeah, Theotetus. It's one of the Platonic dialogues. So you're speaking to Theotetus. Is that, again, is that how you say it? Theotetus? I'm not. We'll, we'll go for it. I okay. don't know either. It's Greek. It's ancient Greek. We don't know how they said it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're speaking to the student who just got, you know, deplatformed punitively with all the grandstanding of these cancelers um, and his entire life was reduced uh, because he had the temerity to call for civility and grace towards someone who was canceled before him. How, how would you instruct that student? How, how is it more doable to leave that comment up to, you know, to not have to, I, I don't know, what, what would you say to that student? I'd say that the thing about spirals of silence is they're very fragile. 
they break down very quickly when people stop being afraid. And people stop being afraid actually when it doesn't take that many people to stand up and say, wait a minute. So although it takes bravery to stand up for what you for what you believe, for the constitutional knowledge, whatever, it's important to do it. But but I think much more important is to support others who do that and, and to do what you tried to do in an environment where you don't necessarily disagree with that person. But to the extent that, that we stand up to the mob, and there are a lot of other people out there who agree with us, who are silent because they don't wanna be hammered. You can start to reverse these dynamics. There's psychological experiments on how you can manipulate opinion and inculcate false views by creating a, a false consensus. And it turns out that in like a room full of people where you've got people who are unwilling to speak up uh, or say what's obviously true, that it only takes one reality ally in that room, one person willing to speak up before the experimental subject will become much more likely to say what they actually believe. So it doesn't take that many people to change a culture to be a more open culture. So I tell people, yeah, stand up for truth, but more important, stand up for people you disagree with. Join them publicly. If I had a nickel for all the people who've been canceled, I interviewed a bunch and then I've read a bunch of accounts. One of the things they all say is people come to them when they're canceled and say, uh, I wish I could support you in public, but it's too dangerous. I locate a lot of the problem with those people. Canceler, people who are canceled need support. They need institutional support from their institutions, which means employers should not be firing them um, because mobs are demanding it. It means universities should have a strong commitment to supporting faculty who say unpopular things. And it means that we as individuals should come to the side of those who are being targeted with cancellation. It'll make all the difference to that individual in terms of not feeling completely isolated and that their world has come to an end. And it will make all the difference to our culture. Yeah, there, there are several instances, a couple just in the, in the last several months, uh, where that has definitely been the case. Where, And I know like I have this negative bias in my mind, uh, but it does feel incredibly isolating, or I, I do feel incredibly isolated and every time that that's happened, I've had folks hit me up privately and whether it's an instant uh, private message or um, there was one situation that happened in a, a school setting, a school auditorium setting where students and parents of students and teachers came up to me privately after I was shouted down for, you know, saying something along these lines, just asking a, a candid question. Um, they came, hey, I'm so glad you asked that question. I was thinking that. And you know, they didn't necessarily apologize for not having me back in that moment, but it, it's an interesting phenomenon that happens that every time that this has happened, folks have circled back around to me and, and expressed support, but privately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's right. And it, it turns out that if five or six of those people on your, in the situation you described had chimed in to support you, it could have been a very different dynamic. Because uh, believe me, there are other people in that room who either agreed with you or believed you should be able to say it, who were laying low. I do begin to question my sanity because I do find myself in these situations <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> so, well, that's that's for a reason. You know, we haven't while we're talking about reality allies, we we haven't pivoted to the other big part of other half of the big pincer movement against the Constitution of knowledge, and that's mass disinformation. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but the same thing applies there. There are some real heroes in America right now. So the, the biggest, most audacious, most effective mass disinformation campaign that's ever been run in America, again, since at least the 1850s, which, by the way, did not end well, <laughs> yeah. as you recall. Yeah. The biggest by far is the Stop the Steal campaign, which is run by Donald Trump and his MAGA allies. They used a tactic called the Firehose of Falsehood developed, perfected by the Russians. And that's, you're not necessarily trying to persuade people. You don't have a coherent alternative story. You just put out so many lies, half-truths, exaggerations, conspiracy theories out through so many channels, so loudly, so repeatedly, 
that people become confused. They no longer know what to believe. They become cynical. They become mistrustful. They think, is there even a difference between truth and falsehood? That's what Putin is all about in his propaganda uh, with Ukraine. That's what MAGA is all about. You know, they put out hundreds of different versions of how the election was stolen. Not one of them backed up by empirical evidence, not one of them sufficient actually to change the result of the election. But the point is to, to clutter and pollute the epistemic environment, the knowledge, the information environment so completely that people will just be bewildered and assume where there's smoke, there must be fire. So how do you fight that? It's kind of the same thing. There have to be social resistance to it, which means our institutions have to get a lot better at getting ahead of this stuff. And it turns out they are. The Biden administration just ran historically the, the most effective anti-disinformation campaign that we've seen in modern times against Putin in Ukraine by declassifying a bunch of information, doing what's called pre-bunking. You, you kind of inoculate the public by saying, here's the disinformation you'll be seeing. That actually deterred Putin from doing a lot of it. But individuals too, it's, it's the same kind of story. So there are some super brave Republican vote counting officials in this country, people like Stephen Richer in Maricopa County, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, who have stood up against all the pressure that MAGA and their allies can muster, including physical threats and intimidation. And they have not yielded ground. Those people are providing the anchors to reality that our whole society depends on. And what we can do is stand by their side. Thank them for that. Make that honorable. Reward them at the polls. And I am so glad that Brad Raffensperger just won re-election by a big margin in Georgia. Handle it. Yeah. That's a really big deal if you care about the truth. There are definitely some encouraging signs, but there's reason to... Stay on guard. I mean, there there yeah. are candidates that that uh, will be count. You know, if if they're elected, attorneys general who are full MAGA, full stop. Oh steel. yeah, yeah. My home state, Arizona, uh, the person who was the leading Republican gubernatorial candidate was essentially she walked right up to the line and promising that if she was elected, she would not certify a Democrat in the twenty four presidential race. Interestingly, though, she's now running behind. She's fallen behind a very different kind of Republican who is truth-based. So that also is a bit encouraging. But there, yeah, the thing to remember is constitutional knowledge asks a lot of us. It's just very difficult for the reasons we started out discussing. I can't give you final truth. I can't say that, you know, however true it may feel, you must be right. I can't privilege you, even if you want to be privileged. So it's always going to be um, under attack, under question. It's always going to be complicated and hard to understand because it relies on this global network of total strangers to help us understand truth. Like we're not wired that way. We're supposed to ask our cousin. So it's always going to be nip and tuck defending constitutional knowledge. And, and there are two things that are just so important to guard against. One is complacency, just assuming, well, we win because we're better. That's not how it works. Um, these enemies, these antagonists, they're very sophisticated actors. And the second is defeatism. It's so hard, social media, Fox News, cancel culture is everywhere. We will never deal with it. That's the state of mind. Ultimately, what all of this cognitive warfare is trying to do is demoralize the other side, make them feel so helpless, and futile that they'll give up trying. That's how minorities and demagogues and dictators take over. So we must not get defeatist and we must not get complacent. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us are looking for this one big sweeping you know, victory, uh, whether it's an election day or something. And it sounds like that's just not how it works. It's not how it works. It's an ongoing effort. It's millions of individuals understanding the constitutional knowledge, what the rules are that allow us to, to find and stay anchored to truth, and looking for ways in our environment, our institution, your podcast, 
is a truth-based institution. I believe that. That's why I'm here. You are careful not to say bullshit. That's not true, even though it would probably improve your ratings if you did. <laughs> Julie noted. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what this is about is strengthening institutions of every kind throughout society, government, media, social media, universities, you name it, podcasts, and what we can do as individuals in our environment to stand up for the values of the constitution of knowledge. I just thought of the title for your, uh, your upcoming podcast that I'm determined to produce. <laughs> yeah. What is it? The constitution of knowledge. Oh, Jonathan Roush swearing to defend well, I don't know, something along those lines. We'll create a whole pledge. I would have said that's too many syllables, Corey, but you run a podcast called, let's see, talking about politics and religion without killing each other. A lot of syllables. A lot of syllables. I would have advised against that if I were your media consultant. Yeah. Yeah. Good faith, you know, or something, something really. But yeah, exactly. I actually asked Julie Mason really early on. I was thinking about changing it to uh, the Purple District podcast or something, you know, much more concise. And she said, you know, Julie, I don't know if you know her. She has this great show and she loves journalism and great journalists. She said, no, I love it. It tells you exactly what what it is. So I love it, too. Actually, it's so long that that becomes the gimmick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like that the movie that uh, Brad Pitt was in, uh, Jesse James or something that, uh, remember that long title of that, that indie film that he was in? Anyway, so how's the Constitution of Knowledge going? Like, are you getting folks to swear to defend the Constitution of, you know, uh, how's it, are, are you getting folks to understand how you've articulated it and, and to get on, get on board? I think so. You know, the way, the way I work, my business model is that I try to plant big ideas, find and plant big ideas. And what I found about the idea business, working on, for example, same-sex marriage, of which I was an early, early advocate, is that ideas are a big bomb, but on a long fuse. You've got to be willing, when you state the idea, People have no friggin' idea what you're talking about. They think it's crazy. They've never heard anything like it. But you and then others need to pick it up and make the case. And 15 or 20 years, the world could be transformed by this idea that seemed nutty. And that's what happened with same-sex marriage, just for example. And that's what I thought would happen with this book. And I, I think it will. But to my very pleasant surprise, commercially, this has been by far my most successful book. Sales have been very strong. Demands to be on podcasts and speak at universities and elsewhere have been strong. And I think it's because, I mean, you tell me, but you invited me on your podcast. Um, and you don't have a lot of podcasts probably about epistemology, social epistemology. Too many syllables there, too. <laughs> but I think it's because people understand that something is deeply wrong in the realm of truth and knowledge. And they understand that it's coming from multiple directions, like this you know, crazy academic stuff deconstructionism and it's all about power and you can't say that if it you know if it's cultural appropriation or if it makes me feel unsafe and they also understand there's some very weird and dangerous stuff coming from the right and i think what my book does is give a conceptual framework to understand what's going on here basically say look there are rules like the us constitution for how we derive knowledge and those rules are what are under attack. And here's the techniques that are being used. And that's helpful to people. I, I, th I absolutely think it is. So when I read others' pieces that I really respect and a certain book or a certain writer is mentioned, I'll take note of it. And then when it's mentioned again, I flag it. And then when it's mentioned again, I start kissing, you know, kicking myself for not having reached out to that person. So, but that, that's what was happening with your name and, and, and your work. And then, you know, now having the privilege of reading the book, I think that it does a number of things. Any, any one of us who are sort of paying attention sociologically to what's going on, we have a sense of, I, I just feel sick. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but I know I feel sick. So, the book spends a lot of time diagnosing very specifically what some of these ailments are, but it goes further and, and it provides 
it also contextualizes it. So it, it's helpful to know that a lot of what's happening may be a new form, but it's not necessarily entirely new. So we have a context to understand it historically. But the, the, the awesome part is what we began to do toward the very end here. And But here's what we can do. I, I think that's what's so important about it is here's how we can start to fight back against some of these ills, uh, cancel culture, troll culture, what have you. But here's how we here's how we can continue to move things forward uh, for those values that that we talked about earlier on. That being um, knowledge, freedom, and peace. Well, it it warms my heart, of course. If that that was the goal, to do exactly what you just described, to help define the target, um, the goal, and help people, help myself, help other people get there, and and to do that by going all the way to fundamentals. You know, this isn't just about this week or this month or what Putin happens to be doing now or what Trump said or, you know, what happened at, at Georgetown University the other day. This is about the fundamentals of where knowledge comes from. It, it goes right back to, to Plato, really. And it, it walks through the founding of the Constitution of Knowledge, how it was created, what its rules are. So it's ambitious in that sense, but, but I felt that was the only way to really get a handle on the depth of the attacks the system is under. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you if you have any questions for me because I'm scared of what you'll ask. So I, I will, <laughs> we went through that last time. Yeah. So, you're, you're, eventually, you're going to produce my podcast. I think that's right. the answer. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Oh, am I allowed to do that with an atheist? Fingers crossed? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will ask you to remind us again how people can find you and uh, more about all the great work that you're doing. I have a website, jonathanrausch.com. What I can remember, I put up some of my more important articles and books and stuff up there. Also contact information, resume, speaking agent, all of that. I'm at the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC and reachable through them as well. And these will all be links in the show notes. So look for that. Yeah, and the, the book is available at fine outlets everywhere. Yeah, it's very much worth the time. It's a great investment. Yeah, you all can't maybe can't see this who are listening on audio, but but Corey paid me the ultimate compliment because he showed me that he dog-eared the book in so many different places that he had to give up and start writing down page numbers. Maybe we'll make it a promo or something. <laughs> yeah, put that picture in the show notes. I will. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. For so, author, as, that's the highest compliment. That's great. As always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other with all the syllables in that name. And uh, we're easier to recommend than ever. You can find us at politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us. Support our program through Patreon or Patreon and go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Oh, I forgot. There was a great exhortation that bringing up the um, gay marriage, uh, that's, that's what it was. I caught it. Um, you and other activists learned in, in that struggle, deploring and denouncing people rarely changed their mind, but respectfully listening and talking to them often did. I love that. Mm. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.